Okay, take your Bible with me this morning and turn back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And Lord willing, I plan to finish chapter 12 this morning. And then we'll move into the final chapter. I was looking. Uh, yeah, you, we started this study uh, before COVID. Uh, <laughs> we started it in like November of uh, 2019. And uh, it's taken a while to get through it. And, uh, uh, but I, tell, I, I have so, so thoroughly enjoyed uh, going through the book of Hebrews. I, I know that many of you have not been with us uh, it, it, it long enough to know, but this, this makes like the fourth or fifth time that I've taught through Hebrews. I, I always keep going back to Hebrews, and trust me, I promise you, we'll go back to Romans again uh, before too long and probably go to Ephesians in Sunday Bible class because they're such critical books to our comfort and our encouragement. You know, I, more than anything else, and I, and I think about this all the time. I, <clears throat> I, I want God's children to be comforted and encouraged. I, I always keep in the back of my mind, and I know I've said this so many times, to me I, I even sound like a broken record. Always keep Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2 in my mind. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Speak comfortably unto Jerusalem and tell her her warfare is accomplished. She's received double. Where? In Christ. And that's, that's our responsibility. It, it's not the, the gospel preacher's responsibility to come up and, and beat men, women into submission. That's not what this book is about. That's not what this epistle is about. We let, it comes back to this. I guess to put it as simplistically as I can is the best way is put it the way the scriptures put it. We love him and the reason we love him is why? Because he first loved us. So the greater view and greater understanding we have and this greater awareness that we have that we are, we are sure and certain for heaven, that we possess eternal life, that nothing can take us out of the kingdom of heaven, that our Lord Jesus Christ is faithful to his promise in John chapter 6, verse Verse 37, John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh unto me, listen, I will in no wise cast out. And I know, I know unregenerate, lost religious people will take this the wrong way, but listen, there's nothing, there's no sin that a child of God can commit, even willfully, that can shut them out of the kingdom of heaven. I know people say, oh, good Lord, don't say that. I, 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 I really could care less what lost people think. Not concerned about them. And I really don't care what religious people think. I know how they think. You say, well, you don't, you don't know that's what they think. I know what my thought process was because I was one of them. We judge things based on a wrong standard. The standard by which every sinner is either lost or saved is simply one. Do you possess the righteousness of God? Because if you don't, I don't care how moral you are, how sincere you are, how dedicated you are, how loving and kind and compassionate you are. You might be the sweetest thing since sliced bread. If you don't possess the righteousness of God, you are a pagan is what you are. 
You're an idolater. And I know that's what I was. A, a pastor responsible for other men and women's souls who knew another Christ, preached another gospel, yet the whole while thought I was going to heaven because of my efforts, because of my faithfulness. So I guess the, 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 the only title I could come up with for this lesson, for these last three verses, is this, Eternal Security in Christ. I know that, that most people in religion think you can be too confident in this life as to whether or not you're going to go to heaven, whether or not you possess eternal life. I, I know when I started in that old false church back over in Shreveport years ago, uh, that not only the pastor but all of us, you know, we were Southern Baptist Church and we believed the typical ideology of once saved, always saved, just like my mom and dad and Everybody else in every Southern Baptist church across this planet, once saved, always saved. That's their keynote. We believe once saved, always saved. But then get them to define it for you. Ask them, is there a sin that somebody can commit that can cause them to lose their salvation? Because if they say you can't get to heaven, somebody's going to miss it that started off in it, they don't believe once saved, always saved. One used to say, well, you, you, you can't be too cocksure for heaven. Well, is, is that scripturally accurate? Is it God's will for his people to always be in doubt or to always be chasing a, an unobtainable carrot? Is that, is that his goal? Is that what we're here for for me to keep you or me on a treadmill running as hard as we can to make certain that we've run far enough, that we gave enough, that we've loved enough, that we've studied the scriptures enough, that we've prayed enough, that we've changed enough. They, they can claim that they believe once saved, always uh, saved it, it, with all their heart, mind, and soul. But at some point, you know, they, they place conditions on the sinner, either on their faith or on their repentance, or like that article that's on the back of the scriptures, they say that, you know, that, that, that if you'll notice that article, and I'd encourage you to read it because it's a very good article, you know, it's based on a verse in 1 John 3, 9, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And I've heard them say this. They say, well, believers might commit sin which that's really kind of silly for them to even say it that way. They say a believer might commit sin, but they won't continue in it. They won't commit it willfully. Well, how many sins have you ever committed that you weren't willfully involved in? That you made a decision to either, because you know, it always goes through our thought process, doesn't it? I mean, we, we just don't, don't it, it isn't like we just trip and fall into sin. My stars, King David was, was he lit, number one, this shows me the problem. King David should have been out leading his army. Where was he at? He was up on the balcony, letting others do the, do the deeds. And he looks out and he sees Bathsheba. 
right? And he lusts after her. And then, this, is, this, is this not willful? He sent for her. She didn't come to him. He sent for her. And then you know the rest of the story. She ended up pregnant. He ended up killing. Uh, you, you think, can you, can you say this guy wasn't practicing sin? <laughs> and here's the thing about that story. He practiced that sin all the way up until that you story that you lamb was told to him by Nathan and prophet. I don't see anything in the scriptures where David was bemoaning the fact that he had made this woman pregnant and that she had, he had put her husband to death. I, until Nathan told that story and he got indignant about the story, about he got indignant about the man killing, you know, taking and killing that guy's one new lamb when he had concubines and wives forever, David did, and he got angry at it, and he said, that, that man that did this thing pay for it what? Fourfold. And Nathan looked at him, and he said, you are the man, David. That's when it registered. What did he do? He said, Nathan, pray for me. And thank God, God, and that, that's, why, that's why David wrote Psalm 32 on the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. Blessed transgression forgiven. Blessed iniquity covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not listen. Will not charge sin. Nathan looked at him and said, The Lord hath put away thy sin. Were there consequences? Yes, there were. Yes, there were. That baby died. One of his sons raped his daughter. The other son killed that brother. And then finally and ultimately Absalom himself died. There are consequences to our sins. There are. But thank God our Lord has put them away. And see, this is the thing. The older I get in the faith, by God's grace, the more confident, and more dogmatic I've become concerning the necessity of believing, of a believing justified sinner's faith <clears throat> concerning the eternal security of their salvation in Christ. Two passages come to my mind for certain when I think about how important it is for us to have eternal security in Christ. One of them is this. Let me just read them both to you real quick for time's sake. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hours come, glorify thy son. Thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal. What's life eternal? That they might know thee. Do what? That they might know thee. The only true God. And who else do we know? Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You say, well, that one don't do it for me. Well, let me read you this one. He says this. Same, same apostle. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record, the, the testimony that God hath given 
of his son. Because see, this is what salvation's about. It's not about what would you do with Jesus. The testimony of the gospel is about what God did in Christ. That's a big deal of difference in that statement. This is the record. This is the same word, testimony. This is a testimony that God hath given to us eternal life, and that life is where? In his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. Now listen to this. These things, that record's what he's talking about, that God has given, freely given, without any conditions on earth, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you might have confidence, that you have eternal life, and that you might continue to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. I tell you what, possessing the same faith as Abraham, and we do. Abraham's the father of the faithful. We too, we, we must live. And we must believe the same thing he believed. Listen to you. He, Abraham, staggered not at the promise. This, what did 1 John 5 say? This is the promise he hath promised us. <laughs> he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. How do we give glory to God? Being fully persuaded that what he had promised what God promised he is able also to form Jude got it right to him who able to keep you from falling and to present you unto himself holy unblameable and unreprovable in his sight now look at our text look at verse 27 these are the things, and you know, last week we talked about that God shook the earth once. Verse 26, and we'll see that this verse really explains more fully verse 26. In this word, verse 27, yet once more signifying the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that things which cannot be shaken may remain. Like I said, verse, this verse explains verse 26. What, what got shook? Well, I'll tell you what got shook. The whole mosaic economy. Everything, every, everything that's recorded into Pentateuch, particularly those that concern the law in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, everything about that old covenant, what was it? It was abolished and set aside by way of perfect fulfillment through the Lord Jesus Christ who established that new covenant. That's what he's talking about. The old has been passed away, and now what's in its place? The new covenant, the everlasting covenant. Now, some people are of the opinion that, that Paul here is writing about Christ's second coming. When he comes back, he's going to shake the world a second time, but I don't think that that would suit the argument that he's making here, but especially what he's about to say in verse 28. And that's not his design. You've got to remember what he's saying to these men and women, these Hebrew believers, 
who had spent all their lives in the Judaistic faith and now had been delivered from that Judaistic faith and had at least given mental agreement to and had believed in Christ and, and expressed with their mouths outwardly, professed with their mouth that Christ was the Lord their righteousness. His design was to show to them, because some of them were beginning to go back or were on the verge of going back. Many had gone back, had gone back to the temple worship because it was still existing at this time. Didn't end to 70 A.D. But what he's seeking to show those that are teetering, those that are on the verge, those that are, are beginning to act like they might go back, he's seeking to show to them the infinite superiority of the gospel economy over that entire mosaic economy. And he shows them, just like our Lord Jesus Christ said right before his death, the utter destruction of those who would go back. Now, this is what's so important the utter destruction of any who would go back to that earthly temple thinking that it was pleasing to God. Look what Paul stated. Look back over at chapter 10, verse 38, 39. Now the just, the righteous, how do they live? They live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition. And perdition here is hell. We don't draw back to hell. Because that's where all that's going to end. And you do realize that every one of those Jews, physical lineage people that can trace their, their earthly lineage back to Israel, to, to Abraham, even though they are religious, and this goes all the way back to the beginning of the covenant. If they weren't seeing through that covenant the promised Messiah, every one of them died in unbelief. You realize that, don't you? I mean, you think about the horror, and this, is, this sounds bad, but this is the reality of it. All those Jews that died during the Holocaust, they didn't go to heaven because they died in the Holocaust, because they were Jews. If Christ was not their hope, every one of them, where'd they go? People say, how dare you say something like that? How dare you insinuate that Christ's blood and righteousness can, can, is not the only hope of a sinner? <laughs> that's a, that's a two-way street. You can't have it both ways. Let's, Never you can, you can search this book cover to cover. There has never been a promise of life through the law. Not one. The promise from the beginning is where? The seed of the woman. And they started looking. We're going to talk about it this morning in the worship hour. The Pharisees were looking for the Christ, weren't they? That was their problem with Christ. They had a different mindset about what Christ was going to be. They were looking for him, hoping for him. They're still, they're still looking for the Christ the first time. See, the thing in which the majority of these Jews were trusting, it's been removed. When that, when that veil split in two, when our Lord cried, it's finished, and gave up the ghost, and that, rail, that, that, that um, veil split in two, that covenant was done. Never to be reestablished. 
And men in ignorance and unbelief, those Jews, what they do? They just kept right on going. I don't know how they explain that. It shows you how dim-witted, well, take it back. It shows how dim-witted all men and women are by nature. In darkness and in unbelief. Every one of us, apart from the grace of God, we're just like that gathering demoniac. Every one of us. And so they just mindlessly follow their Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I guess they, they doesn't tell us historically, but somehow they had to put that veil back together. And then the sons of Levi just kept right on serving right up until 70 AD when it all got obliterated and done away with. You think about this Sinai and its laws, the Jewish state both politically and ecclesiastically, the whole mosaic economy, including the priesthood, the tabernacle, all the sacrifices, all the ceremonies, and all the things pertaining to divine worship, which were made with hands, all of it had been removed, how? By Christ alone, based on his righteousness alone, his obedience unto death. What had he done? He perfectly satisfied by his obedience unto death every precept and penalty of God's law and justice on behalf of every person whom he represented as their substitute and surety. I thank God for our Lord's words when he said, Think not, I came to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy the law. What did I come to do? I came to fulfill it. For not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law until all be fulfilled. On the cross, cried, it is finished. Paul confirmed what was finished in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every man that believeth. So listen to me. To trust in those things. Participate in any of those things. And that, if they, they, they left that, well, I'm, I'm just going down here to be with my mom and dad. To participate in any of it. Practice any of it, thinking that it forms some part of a ground or hope or cause of salvation. What's the result? He says, we are not of them that draw back. Where? Perdition. Think about what we went, when we went through Galatians. Christ said, as many as are of the works of the law, what are they under? The blessings of God? Under the curse. Why? Cursed is every man that continueth not in all things, which are written in the book of the law, for to do them. Look at verse 28. Our text. He says, wherefore... Remember, that, that, that kingdom's shaken. This one is forever. It can't be removed. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That word translated kingdom. You look at it in the New Testament, it's always used this way. In the New Testament, it refers to the reign and rule of Messiah. The reign and rule of Messiah over what? Over his church. That which he's the mediator and surety of. 
See, he has this power and this authority. How did he get it? By virtue of what? He paid the price. He satisfied the, 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 the law and justice of God in his people's stead. He established for us that righteousness which demands our eternal salvation and enables a holy and just God who will by no means clear the guilty to justify us. And in this kingdom, now think about this, all true believers, every one of us, whether we're new in the faith or we're mature and old in the faith, every one of us are in an unchangeable state of justification based on the unchangeable righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why this kingdom can't be moved. In order to move this kingdom, who do you, who do you have to move? You have to move the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he told Peter? He said, Thou art Peter, and on this rock, not Peter, on this, on this cliff, which he was referring to, he said, called him Peter, pebble. But he said, on this rock, I can envision our Lord saying it, Thou art, you're Peter. Sure enough, but on this rock, talking about himself, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can't overcome it. All of God's elect receive his kingdom as a free grant, and their right and title to it is, is being the merits of Christ's obedience and death alone. And they receive it when by the power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and conversion. You know what they do? They obey from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto them. Delivered how? Through the preaching of the gospel. Look at these verses with me. Look over, hold your place there. Look over at Romans chapter 6. Verse 17. I've always loved these, this verse the way it states it. To me, it makes it so clear. He says, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. You were, and that word servant is doulos. It's bond slaves. We were bond slaves to sin. We were willing servants of sin. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. It says which was delivered you. And literally it means which, by which you were delivered. That's what that means. We were delivered through that form of doctrine, that teaching concerning who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Being then made free. When were we made free? When we believed that form of doctrine that delivered us. And what Paul said, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that what? He is able. Being then made free from sin, what did we become? you became for the first time something you had never been in your religious life. You think about it. Every time I stood in a pulpit as a false preacher, it was an abomination to God. Every time I dropped to my knees to pray, every time I picked up this holy book and read it, what was it? What to, think of the most vile sin you could possibly imagine. Get the image in your mind. This is worse. <laughs> and it, Paul said of his own righteousness, what did he say it was? D U N G. 
What is that? The actual word is human excrement. Everything that he did. <laughs> I'm telling you, a sinner by nature will never admit that. By nature, we have to have something to hold on to. I, I got to have some rung on the ladder that I can cling to and say, I know I'm saved because I did this. I had this change in my life. I, I quit doing this. I started doing that. That's not salvation. Salvation is what? You have became, you've been made what? Servants of righteousness, dulios, bondservants of righteousness. How? Through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his obedience unto death. And folks, the treasures of this kingdom, and boy, they are many and various. The treasures of this kingdom, what are they? They're knowledge, who Christ is, what he did. Liberty. How about this one? There's a treasure indeed. Righteousness. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy, and assurance. Listen to Paul. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. What does that mean? Well, he tells us here that whatever this kingdom is that we cannot, that cannot, we've received, that cannot be moved, it's got nothing to do with anything that is of this earth. That's why he says meat and drink. And here's the comparison. But here's what the kingdom of God consists of. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he... That in these things, what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. He that serves God in these things, serveth Christ, is acceptable to God, and he's approved to man. Again, we receive right and title of this kingdom based on the righteousness of another, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I, every one of God's elect, right now in this present world, what are we? We're a royal, kingly priesthood. Peter put it like this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal peace priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy. But now, you know what? You've obtained mercy. Christ looked at the Pharisees one time. He said, go learn this. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. What's mercy? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. He says, that's what I have on sinners. I don't give you something because of your sacrifices, because of your effort. But then he says this. He said, receiving this kingdom that cannot be moved, he said, let us have grace. And that, that let us have grace, it means, really, literally translated, it means this. Let us show gratitude. Or let us be grateful. Let us be thankful to our God. That, where's our victory? It's in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And see, it's this gratitude, this thankfulness that all of my salvation is conditioned on the Lord Jesus Christ according to God's promise that enables me as a justified sinner to worship God acceptably, beholding his glory in Christ, and by godly fear, being fully persuaded of what God's promised, what's he able to do? I think about this verse all the time, Psalm 130. Old David says, Lord, if thou shouldest mark my iniquities, you write them down, any of them, the smallest. I mark my iniquities, who can stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be what? What a strange thing. Forgiveness is given that we'll do what? We fear him. Why do we fear it? By God's grace, we see what it costs to put away sins. The cost of repentance, the cost of forgiveness, it's not my faith, it's not my remorse, it's not my promising to do better. And folks, it's not even me doing better. What's the cost of forgiveness of sins? The blood of his dear son. The only one of which God truly said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if I'm in him, if God's well pleased with him, who's he also well pleased with? He's well pleased with me. But then he says this, verse 29, for our God, not their God, Paul says, our God, what is he? He's a consuming fire. You know, our God is jealous. He 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 actually takes that name to himself. He calls himself jealous. He's jealous of his worship. Go back and look at the Old Testament when Israel got out of line and began to worship God in ways that he had not told them to worship and how'd he deal with it. And see, those who lack this gratitude have no interest in the kingdom. Those who do not see our God as a consuming fire, what are they? They're objects of God's wrath. And to them, what is he? He's a consuming fire. Let me say this and we'll quit. You know, doubt as to God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise of salvation condition on Christ alone, it's not humility. I just don't know whether I've done enough to go to heaven. Well, I tell you what, you tell me when you have done enough. Tell me what the standard is of enough. That's not you meddling. Wavering as to whether or not Christ's righteousness demands your salvation, that's not humility. See, it's one of two ways. We're either condemned or we're justified. We have either come into all these blessings, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, or we have not come into them. We've received a kingdom which cannot be moved, or yet we're still in Satan's kingdom. We either worship God acceptably, or to us he's a consuming fire. Our God's jealous concerning his worship because he's jealous concerning the honor of his redemptive character. This thing is not about us. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto thee, Bums. All the glory and all the honor and all the praise, world without end. 
those who worship God acceptably and joyfully and gratefully, acknowledging that he has engaged everything about himself, about his character and their salvation. They believe and rest in that righteousness alone that Christ established, and they've repented of former idolatry and dead works. This absolute certainty of salvation based on Christ alone, according to God's promise, and the certainty of eternal destruction to those who expect salvation in any other way produces that reverence and that true godly fear that he talked about is well-pleasing to God. And it's by these means that God preserves us and he causes us to persevere in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing and resting in his gospel, his promise to save us and bless us and keep us for Christ's sake alone. Okay, you're dismissed to the worship hour. Thank you.